Cutting through an overload of information to get to the heart of the story. This is The Point. Welcome to The Point, an opinion show coming to you from Beijing. I'm Li Xin. Uncomfortable conversations and concrete measures and actions are necessary to lay the scourge of racism to rest. A United Nations official said this about systemic racism in the United States last week. The UN Committee on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination published a report after a periodic review of the country's racial justice record. Many questions were asked about committee were asked by committee experts rather about the racial injustices plaguing ethnic minorities and impoverished communities in the country. What measures are being taken to address racial discrimination and what led to the rise in gun violence and hate crime against minorities in the United States? Today we're bringing you the third and last episode of our special series America's Three Big Societal Woes, Income Gap, gun violence and racial discrimination. I'm pleased to be joined from New York by Margaret Kimberly, executive editor and senior columnist for Black Agenda Report, and from Beijing by Wang Tsung, chief reporter of the Global Times. The warmest welcome to both of you. So the committee highlighted the rise in attacks against people of African and Asian descent, members of the Muslim and Jewish communities and other racial and ethno-religious minorities. The committee unequivocally rebuked the United States for failing in almost every racial justice issue covered by the anti-racism treaty which it directly linked to the legacies of slavery and colonialism that's written by Jamil Dakwa head of uh, the American Civil Liberties Union's human rights program Margaret how do you look at his remarks while the US founding documents assert that all men are created equal, has the country failed to deliver on this important promise? Well, yes, it has failed, and uh, it's, it's very tragic. Um, there's been uh, so much suffering, you know, even when there is progress uh, in the 1960s during uh, what's often referred to as the civil rights movement, the liberation movement, uh, there were gains made, but at the same time that there were legislative remedies made, immediately we see the mass incarceration system beginning. And we see neoliberalism taking hold, which impoverished so many millions of people. So with, uh, if there is not a commitment at the top, if there's not uh, seriousness about acknowledging uh, uh, racism and its impact, then you we end up with the situation where we're in now, where the U.S. continually uh, claims to be this uh, uh, racism-free country when in fact it is anything but. Wang Tsong, the UN report said that uh, 2021 was one of the deadliest years on record with uh, 1,145 people killed by law enforcement officers with people of African descent almost three times more likely to be killed by police than white people. And police killings have not declined, however, after the murders of uh, Breonna Taylor and George Floyd. Why not? What notice noticeable measures have been put in place to stem this record and why things don't seem to have uh, uh, stopped from deteriorating? 
Well, Liu Xian, I have uh, two words for the U.S. feeling to address uh, these uh, racially charged uh, gun shoot, uh, police shootings against African and other uh, minorities, toxic politics. In the United States, there's no consensus a consensus built upon uh, the existence, the very existence of ch racially charged police killings, the racism within the institution, in the justice system, in the law enforcement. I remember my first assignment in the United States was to report in the killing of uh, a uh, unarmed black uh, a teenager in Missouri. And at the time, it drove the national conversation about police killings of African-American uh, teenagers. However, the, uh, the division, the dispute, the disagreement on if that was racially charged was larger than the uh, national uh, so, uh, conversations about solutions to tackle the system, systemic issue. So I think uh, it is feeling, not only feeling, it is getting worse, worse every time uh, because of the toxic politics, the rhetoric from Washington, from the White House, from the Capitol Hill about the very existence. I remember that uh, uh, during President Trump's uh, uh, presidency, there were a lot of discussions about uh, the, uh, the, these racially charged issues and they dismissed, basically dismissed that and that uh, exasperated the issue, the disagreements. Mm. And Biden, President Biden promised to tackle that, but mm. I have not seen any meaningful mm. measures, at least on the national level, to tackle this. Margaret, what is your take? Basically, Wang Tsung is saying there is a, some kind of a denial to uh, a lot of the racism that is uh, rampant in the United States that's reflected in gun violence, for instance, disproportionately affecting minority groups. Well, yes, there is a lot of denial. And uh, well, there's both denial and very open racism. Uh, we have a, a system where the police uh, exist to control, physically control black people, because that's frankly what most white people want. And uh, they know that they are uh, unlikely to be victimized. Uh, we have a, a situation, a political situation with President Biden. He always talks about having more police. He's going to allocate $30 billion for more police. We don't need more police. There are plenty of police in this country. Uh, the money we spend on policing is what other countries spend uh, for their military. So this is not something we need. But uh, he says these things because it's a, a, a racist appeal. And despite the fact that he was supposed to be uh, the uh, uh, antidote to Donald Trump's racism, we just get more racism, uh, but it is dressed up in a different way. So as long as we have both uh, open racism and denial, um, all of these statistics, the police killings, the mass incarceration, the arrests, the shootings, all of it will remain the same uh, unless we really have a transformation uh, at the top. A United Nations official also expressed in her report on the systemic racism in the United States that entrenched disparities in laws and public policies and in public and private institutions had often denied equal opportunity to individuals and communities, particularly for people of African descent. Wang Song, how serious is institutional 
institutional racism, according to your experience. And what's the problem now? Are people simply getting, or have people simply gotten used to the reality? Well, that's the root cause, right? The institutionalization of racism. Uh, I mean, of course, a lot of people in the United States refuse to recognize even the, that. But that's the issue, uh, because everything, especially with gun violence, with crimes related to minorities, uh, there are a lot of research done on that. It's directly re related to where they grew up, the neighborhoods, and the economic and social status of their families, their upbringing. Uh, so the institutionalization of racism is uh, is reflected in that because of the neighborhoods where poverty uh, is is uh, pre uh, pervasive uh, that these people grown up uh, they can't enjoy or they, they don't have the rights to pursue the american dream as many other do so they grown up and then there are uh, disproportionate crimes and their uh, their uh, their difficulties they face and then the, these things getting, you know, it's, it's almost like a vicious circle. But the problem is always the rhetoric from the top. Uh, they're dismissing this and they're saying that America is, as the funding members uh, talking about, is, uh, it's all men uh, created equal. But really, it's anything but when it comes to, uh, you know, racial, disagree uh, racial mm -hmm. racism and uh, the uh, divide between the rich and poor uh, politics uh, and you know it, it's really uh, it's institutional problem that right. requires institutional uh, measures but we have not seen that in march 2020 at the height of the uh, first wave of the covid 19 pandemic asian americans were subjected to rampant racial hatred but the u.n committee said in new york city only three percent of attacks against asian persons were prosecuted. Margaret, why were only a fraction of cases reported or prosecuted as hate crimes uh, qualify for prosecution by the police? Is this part of institutional racism? It is, um, uh, but there's also an issue with crime in general. If, uh, uh, let's say, an uh, Asian person is the victim of a crime, a robbery, is it a robbery? Is it because of hate? So sometimes it's difficult to ascertain uh, when a, uh, uh, an incident is a, an ordinary crime or a hate crime. But the most important thing I think to remember is that was a very difficult time. Crime in general uh, rose uh, uh, across the country. Mm -hmm. All the dislocations, the unemployment, all of these things uh, combined uh, to uh, increase crime across the country. But as far as uh, anti-Asian uh, racism, I believe that started at the top. It started, Donald Trump was president at the time. He uh, deflected criticism of the way that uh, uh, he handled the, the COVID uh, pandemic by blaming China. He called the, you know, COVID was the Chinese flu or the Kung right. flu or making all sorts of jokes. But that starting at the top, that very open Margaret, racism right. created that problem. Uh, Margaret, do you think it is still possible to address racial uh, discrimination individually without uh, at the same time addressing gun violence, for instance, or income disparity? Because these issues seem to be intertwined with each other. Uh, what's the likelihood of the situation getting better in the near future when the American society is so polarized at this moment? 
Well, they are all intertwined. There's so much wrong in this country. The uh, inequality, uh, uh, racism, uh, so many terrible things that are just accepted. The fact that, uh, let's be honest, many people, many white people know that the system favors them. They aren't interested in uh, making any changes because they would no longer be a privileged group. So you have this combination of open racism and denial and cynicism, um, uh, a system which makes literally makes money uh, off of racism. People, uh, you know, China is always accused of forced labor. There's forced labor in U.S. prisons, and it's very profitable. So you have a, a situation where uh, all of these things that are that are quite terrible benefit someone. And there's very little um, inclination among Americans to yeah. talk about what's wrong. Um, finally, Margaret, I, I still want to ask you this. Okay, uh, the COVID-19 Hate Crimes Act got commended mm -hmm. by the UN Committee. So any news, any positive news to give us, to give the minority community some signs of hope that, you know, it is still worth pushing for it, uh, things can turn around? Yes, things will turn around when the masses of people turn them around. Whenever we have progress in America, it is because uh, it comes from the bottom. It comes from the bottom up. It comes from mass action. And okay. too often Americans think if we just change a president, things will be better. We are the ones who have to bring about right. change. And yes, it is possible. Thank you so much, Margaret Kimberly, executive editor and senior columnist for Black Agenda Report, and Wang Tsong, chief reporter of the Global Times. We'll take a short break, and when we come back, what stood out most to three international students who recently visited Xinjiang? They share their stories from Xinjiang with me. Stay with us. Making room for all opinions and seeing events from more than one side. This is The Point. Xinjiang is a place where people from different ethnic groups have lived together for millennia. In July this year, 20 international students studying in China made a seven-day trip to the region to see the place for themselves. For most of them, it was their first ever visit to that place. What stood out to them about the region's unique mix of cultures and what made them call this trip inspiring? Earlier, I spoke with three of them. Mazum De Oscar from Bangladesh, Mackenzie Shakil Elviska Elisha from St. Vincent and Grenadines in the Caribbean, and Yunus Shibini from Algeria. The warmest welcome to all of you. First of all, let me go to Oscar. Oscar, tell us about the preparation for this trip. How did it come about? We started on 2nd July for Xinjiang and we were almost 20 students from 19 countries and we started from Hangzhou to Ulumuchi. So our first city was the provincial city of Xinjiang, Ulumuchi. We, were, we, we, we are there for two days. Uh, it's almost one night and one day. And we have been to the Xinjiang Museum and they are called the local market Tapa Chia. Mm -hmm. uh, so when we are in the museum, when we was in the museum, we have saw a lot of um, cultural, uh, cultural and ancient things of Xinjiang, like their cultural diversity, mm -hmm. how they come from past to present, 
and how actually Xinjiang, Xinjiang is a multinationality place where where multinationality comes and mixed with the mixed culture. Yeah. So basically, it's a it's a it's a field trip for the summer to help you understand to help you uh, see the place and uh, get a feeling of this place. Is yeah, that right? Yeah. yeah. Shaquille, what stories about this trip uh, did you share with your family and friends after you come back from the trip? What impressed you the most on the personal level? Okay, so I think what impressed me the most was the different multi-ethnic groups that they have there in um, Xinjiang and the fact that they were, they're all together and um, living peacefully. And I loved, I think we went to Pokaya Museum where we saw um, there was an area that was like a desert and they were able to transform this desert into a green land where the, the people and the army all came together to work and like create a paradise for the people there. I found that to be very inspiring. So you had time to discover not just the diversity of the culture in Xinjiang, but also the economic development and uh, efforts to transform the ecological system. But Yunus, uh, let me go to you because you are a student of music. Uh, you study music and dance. And it must have been a very interesting trip for you because uh, Uyghur music is uh, world famous and Uyghur people are very versatile. They love singing, they love dancing, and they, they love to use you know, um, dance to express their feeling uh, whenever they feel like it. So um, what kind of uh, takeaway did you get from the experience, uh, either the Wega music or the Wega instrument or the way they dance? So, yeah, that's uh, very interesting because in Xinjiang, there is people who are dancing and singing everywhere, like everywhere. And uh, I was more interested in uh, Uyghur's uh, music, like Sharmukamu. Uh, like uh, this kind of music, I heard about it before, but uh, just in some articles and uh, in some lectures in our university. But uh, uh, when I went to Ulumutsi and we saw how this uh, music is performed, and uh, there was a professor there, he was explaining to us uh, in the same time, uh, the meaning of this uh, music and the meaning of uh, the lyrics because we don't understand the Uyghur's language and uh, it was very, very interesting to see the performance uh, uh, just uh, in the real world. So uh, there is a dance, there is instrumental music, uh, there is singing. So it's very interesting and uh, I saw just different instruments. There is just a lot of uh, traditional instruments uh, like dutar uh, and some percussion instruments uh, like um, the ruwap and uh, it's, it's very interesting to me and i asked some uh, questions uh, uh, about these instruments about the transcription of this music uh, because it was uh, like uh, enrated orally like it's uh, oral tradition like mm -hmm. us in uh, our in north africa so uh, it's it was very interesting to see this music how it is performed in the real world. Mm -hmm. Oscar, what, what is your experience? What impressed you the most about uh, the trip? So when uh, we went to Tiaxi district in Kashi and we saw a water solution industry, we know that uh, in the past Xinjiang has lack of healthy water, lack of, uh, lack of water. So when we've been there, 
the water uh, the water solution industry has totally solved that water problem in Xinjiang. We have seen there that the local people are saying that now they have no lack of water and the water is very uh, very healthy for them. So like uh, like China government brings a new life for Xinjiang people, new hope. Uh, Shaquille, what was uh, your biggest, I mean, you talked about economic development as well. Um, did you feel that uh, this was something that you didn't expect at all, that, or that it was something that uh, um, you can learn and you, the, or, country, or people in other places can potentially um, draw experience from and uh, help with their development? Well, at first, it was definitely something I did not expect. Um, but the, the businesses, the company, and as well as the people, they truly, they surprised me a lot. And I find, I feel that it's something that other countries can truly learn from. It, they really put a lot of effort. And it wasn't just one person, it was everyone working together to try and make a better livelihood for the people of Xinjiang. So I think it's something I, I could definitely relate to my country needs as well. Hmm. Um, in general, in general, in terms of uh, stability or, or people's feeling, walking on the streets, going anywhere, I wonder, Eunice, for instance, how did you feel? Did you feel safe? Did you feel that you can go anywhere, talk to people on the street, and uh, there was a general sense of uh, ease or still a certain nervousness or tenseness in the air? What was your experience there? Okay, good. So we didn't have any issue of uh, security or uh, something like that. So we were uh, walking in the streets uh, freely and uh, we, we were talking to people uh, freely. And I remember uh, th there was one, uh, one woman, she went and said to me, she, she was talking to me in Uyghur language and I, I don't understand Uyghur language. Some professor he came in and he translated to me what she said. He just said that you are you are the same as my uh, as my son. You look like my son. So, <laughs> and uh, I just uh, felt very very good in uh, Xinjiang, even if it was very very quick. So because we visited a lot of uh, cities and a lot of uh, places, so we were uh, very quick in our uh, trip. But uh, we saw people, we saw different people, we saw uh, Han people, we saw Uyghurs are living all together. And uh, we learned more about uh, the history of Xinjiang and the multi, uh, multicultural uh, aspects, multi-religions and uh, multi-ethnic groups in uh, this area. And uh, this is uh, really positive to me uh, to see uh, these different uh, ethnic groups are uh, living uh, all together. Very interesting to me. Yeah, I'm sure you have heard, you know, a, a lot of accusations made against Xinjiang, horrible things being said about how the people are treated there or how the people are treated there as employees, you know, that they're forced to work and so on and so forth, or that the, their culture is being, you know, cleansed and stuff like that. So having been there, I understand it was a very short trip. You only get to scratch the surface to say, to say the, the most. But uh, did you have a better understanding? Did it help clear some of the uncertainty or some of the questions you may have had before you go there, Eunice? Well, I heard a lot of uh, negative stuff about uh, Xinjiang before, but um, after being there, I just discovered that uh, there is no like cultural or religious uh, kind of issues 
maybe there is like some security uh, security issues, but this is uh, like national security issues. It's not uh, kind of religious or cultural problem because we saw that uh, they are like they are telling people all their history, like not not just uh, kind of religion or something like that. Deeper Xinjiang's history and uh, all the different group ethnic that survived there or different uh, culture uh, cultures or religions so i didn't saw any problem uh, with that basically when you mean uh, security you mean ex extra strict measures um, in terms of keeping any possible uh, incidents from happening so a lot of security to make sure that things are fine to make sure that everybody is safe is that what you mean uh, yes, yes, uh, because we heard a lot of stories about uh, Xinjiang, some dark uh, years of uh, Xinjiang. Mm. And uh, right now, what uh, the measures are taken to fight against all these uh, events mm -hmm. or all uh, aggressions. Uh, so it's going to be so hard and uh, not just uh, for the for the government, but for the people, it's going to be a little bit hard too. So, But uh, I think, uh, but I'm, I feel more uh, positive uh, about that. Um, so, Oscar, if I were to ask you to sum up your trip in a nutshell, two, three sentences, how would you describe it? Actually, two or three sentences <laughs> is too short to describe my experience and the feelings. But I will, I will say that uh, Xinjiang is really a beautiful place. And the culture, the, the diversity of culture, the multi-ethnic culture, it's really amazed, amazed me a lot. And actually in the past and when we uh, when we, I am not in Xinjiang, so I have learned, uh, I have heard a lot of things about Xinjiang. Mm -hmm. But when I have been there, it's totally makes me right. No, I feel safe in Xinjiang. And, and we all when actually seven days is very short for us and when we are coming back we was very sad i know <laughs> because because, yeah. because we 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 are feeling love xinjiang actually i think that's a that's a feeling that's shared by many people i had certainly the same feeling i didn't want to leave but uh, shaquille what was your experience in a you know in a few sentences i found xinjiang to be truly a beautiful place you know the mixture of the multi-ethnic groups um the people living together in harmony everyone working together for a better future um i feel it's a place i would definitely hope to visit again and i'm so thankful that i got the opportunity to actually witness it in real time you know so i think that's that's about it Mm -hmm. Thank you very much, Oscar, Shaquille and Eunice, and I hope that more people are able to go to Xinjiang and see for themselves this beautiful place. With that, we come to the end of this edition of The Point with me, Lu Xin. You've got the point.